Hello, Internet. This is Matthew, and welcome to the Philosopher's Guide to the Apocalypse. This is not, as you might suppose, a podcast about surviving the zombie apocalypse. At that point, all hope is lost, and you should run into the horde of zombies. No, this is a podcast in which a variety of subjects will be examined using philosophy in the hopes of gaining greater insight and perspective. This podcast won't solve all your problems, but it will make you think. Your mileage may vary. Normies, not allowed. Zombie Apocalypse is a great place to begin the first episode, however. So let me ask you a question. Why do you think there are so many movies about the end of the world, whether that's due to nuclear war or climate catastrophe or a zombie outbreak? I think it's because deep down, people realize that they have been living in a bubble and the wind is blowing in a new direction. History keeps moving forward, as always, and the world as it stands cannot last. One doesn't have to be a fortune teller to know that much. Climate change, misinformation on a scale which is unprecedented, political polarization mixed with political apathy, mass migration, terrorism, a floundering academy, a shift of power dynamics on the world stage, political correctness, all of this and more is coming together to make the perfect shitstorm. What has inspired me to begin this podcast is a profound dissatisfaction with how most people talk about the important issues mentioned already. At the risk of sounding like an angsty adolescent, I am angry. I am angry at myself. I am angry at those in power. I am angry at those in the media, both old and new. I am angry at the people who engage in these conversations. Everybody appears to be delusional and too entrenched in their own limited way of thinking. Communication appears to be impossible. Everything seems to be falling apart, and nobody seems to know what to do about it. The ghosts of the past are still with us, and yet the world is so far removed from those ghosts that people find it incomprehensible. We are stuck between people with pernicious ideologies who want to change the world for the worse, and people who see the change as impossible. That's where philosophy comes in. Or is it? Isn't philosophy actually useless? What does someone truly get out of philosophy except uncertainty on the one hand and utter nonsense on the other hand? Why does it matter to the mailman or the preschool teacher whether Aristotelian logic or Boolean logic is better? Why does it matter to the engineer and the physical therapist if mind comes from matter or vice versa? On top of that, philosophers often feel uninclined to address themselves to mailmen and preschool teachers and engineers and physical therapists. They, like so many professionals, get stuck in their own specialty. They talk using their specialty's terminology, and their meaning and purpose is lost on the rest of us. Indeed, the climate of opinion overall is against philosophy. There was a time when art was the intellectual ideal, now it is science. This is why Neil deGrasse Tyson, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawking, Lawrence Krauss, and others have publicly ridiculed philosophy. Science, they would argue, has replaced philosophy as the best way of interpreting the world. I think this hostility towards philosophy from professionals goes beyond ignorance or the belief that science can answer all questions. It's quite simple, really. If I'm a molecular geneticist, I have lab work to do. Time is a scarce resource, and why would I spend time talking about the theoretical underpinnings of my discipline when I could just do my lab work and I'll answer whatever questions I'm asking by performing experiments, running statistical models of data I've accumulated, etc. This attitude is not unreasonable, and other professionals have a similar attitude. 
In a sense, I'm glad many professionals have this attitude because it means they take their work seriously. Nevertheless, what is needed is cross-disciplinary communication. I think scientists should be more well-versed in philosophy of science because, one, it will help them be better scientists, and two, an interdisciplinary approach to knowledge is the best approach. Our culture praises polymaths to no end while advocating for educational institutions that are designed to pump out specialists. Also, if I may point out an irony that is lost on philosophy's critics, to assert that science has replaced philosophy is to do philosophy. To be against philosophy, in other words, is to take a metaphilosophical position. Your philosophy of philosophy is that philosophy is not a worthwhile pursuit. This is not to mention that science is the daughter of philosophy and the father of the scientific method, Francis Bacon, is important not because of his experiments, but because of his theoretical approach, in a phrase, his philosophy of science. If this seems to be a self-serving definition, I think that is because philosophy as a subject is inherently very broad. Philosophers have touched on almost every subject from pedagogy, Rousseau's Emile, to the theater, Nietzsche's birth of tragedy. Hume contributed to the now emerging field of cognitive science with the treatise of human nature. Aristotle founded literary criticism in the West. And Montesquieu was much more than a footnote for his philosophical history. Philosophy has either founded certain fields or assisted people in making significant contributions to other fields. All right, you might say, even if I can see that philosophy can help you understand other subjects in more profound ways, that doesn't give me a clear definition of philosophy itself. Very well. We have to start with the pre-Socratics. They were mostly interested in what we would think of today as scientific questions. What separated the pre-Socratics from their predecessors was that they wanted to understand the universe not by pointing to this or that god or goddess, but by understanding the inner workings of natural phenomenon, or what was termed natural law. When Socrates came along, he seemed to take more interest in human beings than in plants or planets, let alone deities. He was interested in how people can lead a good life and would ask questions to aristocrats, politicians, women, slaves, and pretty much anyone who would lend him an ear. His thoughts included questions of ethics and politics. So, even in ancient Greece, the birthplace of philosophy, there were two strands of philosophy. Philosophers who were primarily concerned with nature, and philosophers who were primarily concerned with man. Since the natural and social sciences have come into their own, the split today is a little different. I would label them theoretical philosophy and practical philosophy. Or to use more technical terms, this can be conceived of as the analytic continental split. Analytic philosophers generally are concerned with logic, mathematics, language, and other matters related to ultimate reality and knowledge. Continental philosophers are more Socratic. They are more interested in how philosophy can help you live. Experts will be revolted by my generalizations, but that is a good explanation to start with anyways. And besides, I am making a broader point. One's definition of philosophy depends on which approach you prefer. But to give a thorough definition of philosophy, I will take one at a time, starting with practical philosophy. It is important to remember that philosophy comes from the Greek word philosophia, which means love of wisdom. You could be the greatest musician or physicist of your time and lack wisdom completely. This is where philosophy as a way of life comes into play. Epicureanism and Stoicism, two of the most important philosophies that got handed down to us from the Greeks, were lived out day to day. They weren't simply abstract theories about the nature of existence. Epicurus, I'll let you guess which philosophy he founded, 
preached that as a general rule, pleasure is good and pain should be avoided. As such, he lived in a commune with his friends and attempted to enjoy life's minor pleasures. Stoicism takes a different track. Stoicism advocates for a life of detached reason. Live your life without the need for power, without the need for wealth or luxury. And don't weep over this or that incident in your life, because life is hard enough and the universe is ultimately indifferent to us all. Now that I think about it, both Epicureanism and Stoicism advocate for the simple life, but they didn't agree on how to get to the simple life. And by the simple life, they meant how to free yourself from destructive and destabilizing influences, habits, and activities. Practical philosophy is fairly popular, at least among certain circles. There's a prominent Stoic community online, for example. Uh, Alain de Botton, the Swiss-born writer, has made a career out of popularizing philosophy. He even founded the School of Life, an organization which focuses on teaching people life skills and is very philosophically oriented. It is theoretical philosophy, rather than practical philosophy, which most irritates people, partly because of how difficult it can be, and partly because philosophers can deconstruct common experience in ways which can run so counter to said common experience as to seem unhelpful. Free will is a perfect example. Without knowing it, most people are Kantians when it comes to free will. If we can't reason our way to free will, so much the worse for reason. There is something indispensable, both about free will as a concept and people's feelings that they have free will. This is not my opinion on the matter, quite frankly, but I am of the minority. A good handful of the majority feel threatened almost at the suggestion that they didn't choose to marry their wife, that they didn't choose to send their kids to private school. This is where the philosopher chimes in, that they did make those choices, that those choices will have an untold number of consequences, but you aren't the ultimate cause of your choices. You didn't choose your genes, your home life, your language, your culture, and so on. Where is the point when you take over and make a decision? I can go a step further and assert that there is no you. You can point to perceptions, whether that be sweat in your forehead, or anger at your best friend, or a memory from the fifth grade that is as vivid to you now as it was when it happened. This doesn't in any way prove that there is a captain of the ship, a being that is looking at the world through your eyes. What we should be talking about is how or why the illusion of selfhood was selected for. And do other animals experience a sense of self? I could go on, but I will leave it there for now. What I want to illustrate is that I think both brains of philosophy are necessary and illuminating, and as such I can't use either alone to put forward a definition. Here's my best attempt at a definition. Philosophy is the critical examination and deconstruction of everything existing. My definition allows for the richness that is philosophy. You might observe that people aren't fact machines, and people aren't infinite beings. Ipso facto, a critical examination of everything is impossible. Any philosopher who takes anything for granted fails to do philosophy by your definition. No, no. In the same way that the scientific method is bigger than any one scientist, philosophy is bigger than any one philosopher. We don't dismiss Einstein's contributions to theoretical physics because he dismissed quantum mechanics. The comparison is also relevant insofar as both scientists and philosophers are constantly arguing with and critiquing their colleagues. But putting human fallibility aside, my phraseology definition-wise incorporates a line from Marx. He advocated for, quote, the ruthless criticism of everything existing. If we take that phrase at face value, then it is powerful. Any question that is thinkable 
could be asked by a philosopher about practically any subject. Beyond education, theater, cognitive science, and history, I could go on to philosophy of economics, philosophy of dance, philosophy of religion. The list would be so long that you would dissociate out of boredom. But okay, if you followed me this far and you've been convinced, I'm glad. If not, that's okay too. I'm not here to tell you that you have to care about philosophy. You don't. In the same way that I don't have to care about ballet dancing or football. I can understand why philosophy wouldn't interest some people. But in the same way that some people feel like they were meant to be a doctor or an actor, I don't feel like I chose philosophy so much as philosophy chose me. I didn't discover philosophy until my early teens, but I've always had the tendency to think like a philosopher. And by that I mean I asked questions related to meaning and experience and the nature of reality. I wondered what it was like being other animals. I wondered why we were here. But more than that, I was interested in learning for its own sake. I drew connections across various fields. I was interested in history, biology, astronomy. I found ideas aesthetically pleasing, and still do. What is philosophy if not the love of ideas? I would put more emphasis on practical philosophy for the reason I started studying philosophy in the first place, though. As much as I love ideas, what is the meaning of life was a more important question to me than what is ultimate reality. And honestly, practical philosophy is a great introduction to philosophy because it is not academic. The, the philosophers of ancient Greece were the life coaches and psychotherapists and pastoral workers of their time. They asked questions which almost everybody asks at some point. I guarantee you, whether you're struggling with depression, or fighting a lot with your significant other, or simply feeling lost and without direction, there's a philosopher out there for you. Arthur Schopenhauer might not have been the most pleasant of characters, but his pessimism is paradoxically liberating. The same goes for Emile Turin's writings, which are even more hopeless. The existentialists are a good antidote for people who lead lethargic and stagnant lives because they emphasize man's control over his life. Heidegger's writings on how a technological society can alter people's lives for the worse now seem quite prescient. Simone Weil's mystical teachings can be inspiring, even to those of us who have long since abandoned religion and supernaturalism. But if the argument I'm putting forward for practical philosophy doesn't sway you, then nothing. Before I close out this podcast, I should probably make something clear. Nothing I've said in this podcast is the final word said on any of these matters. I am not an infallible teacher. I am not even a professional philosopher. I am a college student who's not quite sure what he wants to do with his life. But that's an aside. In philosophy, there is always more to say. There is always more to write. The first rule of philosophy is that there is not just one philosophy, and there's always more than one answer to any philosophical question. And just because someone is a great philosopher doesn't mean they can't be questioned. As for me, a mere student of philosophy, if I am ever wrong, if I am ever too hasty, if I opine too casually or too dogmatically, I always try to correct myself. But on average, I have the opposite problem. I am too hesitant to take positions out of fear of being wrong. This podcast is an attempt to fix that. I would rather come out as a raging Stalinist than wallow away in indecision. You learn a lot about the subject, about yourself, about others when you take a position and try to defend that position using the strongest possible arguments. As brutal as it sounds to modern ears, I'm not sure Kierkegaard was entirely wrong when he commented that the issue with Christians is that they don't burn people at the stake anymore. 
i.e. they don't truly believe in what they preach. What I'm trying to say is, think of me as a friend with whom you can explore any train of thought, however mundane, however controversial, however obscure. I think it's both a scary time to be alive and a really exhilarating time to be alive. It's scary because the future is always uncertain, and our future is particularly uncertain. But it's exhilarating because it is when times are most difficult that great change can be made. And I truly believe that the path forward is philosophy. But on that note, I think I've said all I want to say at this time. Thank you for listening, and I will end with a moving quote from Henry David Thoreau. I found this quote in Will Durant's The Story of Philosophy. To be a philosopher is not merely to have subtle thoughts, nor even to found a school, but so to love wisdom as to live according to its dictates, a life of simplicity, independence, magnanimity, and trust.